Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today on board are analysts Dennis Goldford. He's a professor of political science at Drake University. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Ben. Sarah Mitchell is with us as well, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Good to be back. Good to have you with us. Uh, We invite our listeners as well as we discuss a number of topics as we like to do on Politics Day. Uh, We'll talk about um, the divided Congress that seems uh, in the future for uh, next year. Also, uh, the lame lame duck session of Congress yet this year. And, of course, that announcement by former President Trump that he'll be running again. And uh, Biden's uh, meeting with the Chinese president, Listeners, what are your thoughts and questions about this surprising to most midterm election result? Uh, What are your questions and your thoughts uh, to share, to ask of our analysts uh, about the return to a divided Congress in 2023, about Donald Trump's announcement? 1-866-780-9100, or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. To start things off, I wanted to draw briefly, Sarah, on your foreign policy expertise to talk about how the conflict in Ukraine spilled into NATO territory yesterday when a Russian-made missile exploded in a Polish village near the Ukrainian border, killing two people. Uh, NATO has said today the explosions were probably caused by a Ukrainian missile defending against Russian attack was likely unintentional. Explain the implications of this explosion in Poland, why it makes a huge difference, whether it was fired from Russia and whether it was intentional. Well, Poland is a member of NATO, so uh, NATO is a defensive alliance such that an attack on one member is treated as an attack on all members. And so if that were to occur, then the NATO allies would come together and discuss what kind of response they would have collectively if one of the members was attacked. Um, It's not automatically triggered. They would have to get together and collectively agree on a response. But I think what we saw uh, with this, uh, you know, initially we didn't know where, where the missile came from. And so I think it's a good sign that NATO uh, dis- you know, discussions uh, and at the G20, Biden called for a discussion of many NATO leaders that were there. Um, and so there was a pretty rapid response to figuring out what was going on and then uh, quickly right, uh, trying to diffuse the situation because uh, obviously this would have implications for you know, turning a bilateral conflict into a multilateral conflict, that would be much more deadly. Mm -hmm. Let's pivot to the domestic front and to you first on this, Dennis. So many facets of the midterm election uh, one week ago, Democrats remaining in control of the Senate, perhaps even increasing uh, their control by one seat. Uh, Republicans looking to take a very slim majority in the U.S. House. Um, Before I ask you about that, to start with, uh, Dennis, uh, and before we talk about the next Congress, let's talk about reflections on these results. Uh, The uh, yesterday Senate Minority Leader, 
Mitch McConnell gave a sober diagnosis to reporters on his party's poor showing last week, uh, saying that some voters were, quote, frightened by Republicans. Let's listen. We underperformed among independents and moderates because their impression of many of the people in our party in leadership roles is that they're involved in chaos, negativity, uh, excessive uh, attacks, and it, it frightened uh, independent and moderate Republican voters. I never predicted a red wave. We never saw that in any of our polling in the states that we were counting on uh, to win. There was no wave. Dennis, what do you think of the minority leader's analysis there? I think that's pretty spot on. And the Republicans, in a way, pulled the feet from the jaws of victory because the uh, even if you have a president and, and a, a political and economic environment that's not as uh, uh, contentious as it is now, typically the party of the president loses seats in the midterm election. <clears throat> they didn't in 2002, but that was to some extent a response to the events of 9-11 in the Trade Center. But uh, Republicans certainly went into this having every intention and hope that they were going to gain seats across the board and certainly gain control of both houses uh, of Congress since they're so evenly divided. So uh, they let the, the Republicans let the Senate slip out of their grasp. You could argue on the other side that the Democrats, in a way, let continued control of the House slip out of their grasp. But, but generally, for the majority leader, I think you had a case of uh, – uh, quite a number of flawed candidates on the Republican side, uh, candidates with no experience or candidates that uh, many people just simply weren't feeling able to take a chance on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis, let me ask you a little bit more about your comment about how the Democrats uh, could have held on to the House. So what what could they have done? What might they have done to to do that? Well, there were evidently, I mean, we don't know the totals yet, but there there were evidently quite a number of very close districts, and the Republicans actually um, uh, took some seats away from the Democrats, uh, just as uh, Zach Nunn did with uh, Cindy Axney. Although since, and we'll talk about this, since I was increasingly red, I think that was one that mm-hmm. was gone for various reasons. But across the country, there apparently were quite a number of Democratic districts that uh, maybe if the Democrats had just had a little more time, effort, money, and, and, and luck, they might have held on to. Because for right now, it looks as though the Republican control of the House will be as thin or almost as thin as the Democratic control has been this past two years. Yeah, I, well, I want to zoom zoom in on Iowa. Yeah, zoom in on Iowa I, here. But go, go, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Sarah. Add your or two cents here. I was just going to say that there was also a, a claim that Democrats in New York could have gerrymandered those districts, so that some of the losses in New York could have been avoided, right? If Democrats had chosen a gerrymandering path there, which they did not. Um, but I also think that the we saw the. The Democrats doing better than expected, um, also because Democrats raised more money. Trump had a war chest of like $96 million that was just sitting there and not spent on these candidates. Um, the abortion ballot initiatives on places like Michigan obviously increased turnout. And we also saw a huge increase in Gen Z turnout, so 27% increase uh, mm-hmm. compared to the last midterm. Um, and 63% of those uh, 
voters between the ages of 18 and 29 uh, were identifying Democrats. So I think that's another major factor that pushed towards a bluer outcome than expected. Yeah, still, still our youngest voters, still a paltry turnout, 27%, but uh, nonetheless an improvement over um, former um, young voters' uh, turnouts for um, recent elections. What else, Sarah, what else surprised you? Were you surprised? Uh, uh, you know, how well did polls in the run-up to this uh, election day predict the outcome? Do you think uh, there, there were surprises for you there? Well, I think if you look at the poll aggregators like 538, uh, they did a, they're pretty close to the predictions, um, and that's because they they weight the poll houses right by their partisan biases. So that's why I think if you look at the predictions, um, you know there there are some seats that 538 got wrong, but overall they they did pretty well. So I would say the polls are looking better on average if you aggregate across them and take into account their level of uncertainty and bias. Um, I would also say, looking at the Iowa aspect of the, you know, Iowa mm-hmm. moving in the direction of a red wave, um, I think the voter restrictions that were put in place uh, certainly, you know, uh, helped Republicans get more more wins. Um, and so we saw early voting down thirty percent versus twenty eighteen. We saw voter turnout down fifty five percent compared to sixty one percent. Uh, in 2018. And, you know, a lot of the uh, the early voting that took place in, in the last midterm was was Dems, Democrats were really benefiting from a lot of the early voting. And so um, and I do think the youth turnout in Iowa was also not as high as it was in other states. And so so mm-hmm. all of those factors, I think, uh, help us understand why Iowa looked a little bit different than some of the other battleground states. Dennis, do you agree with Sarah that uh, our new election laws um, tamped down uh, turnout on behalf of Democrats? Well, when you say on behalf, I mean, it affected Democrats more, I think. I mean, when I went to my polling place, I don't vote early. I just go the day of voting. I just happen to like walking in there and, and doing all that. And I have the, the flexibility with my timing to do that. But when, uh, my neighbor was a poll worker, and he just shook his head and said, boy, I've never seen anything like this in terms of turnout. But that wasn't the case overall. Um, you know, the... the, the there, you know, there's a, there's a phrase people used to hear that where you stand is based on where you sit. In other words, quite often your principles are at least to some extent of functions of your interest. And at, at one level, you know, Democrats always say voting is a right. People ought to exercise that. And uh, who can argue against that? And Republicans will say at the level of principle uh, voting, we must have confidence in the polls. We have, must have confidence that every tabulation will be done. There will be no irregularities, things like that. Nobody can disagree with that. That's both at the level, the, the high level of principle. Down below, based on where you sit, so to speak, is that both parties apparently believe, at least by their actions, that if you have increased number of people turning out, that's going to benefit Democrats. Because Republicans tend to take voting more seriously, at least historically, uh, than Democrats do. Uh, so a high level of Republicans are already voting. So if you add additional people to the people showing up at the polls or you enable them, you, you make, if you don't make it harder for them to show up, um, that's going to uh, benefit, at least the parties seem to think, that will benefit the Democrats. Democrats would like that. Republicans really wouldn't. Mm-hmm. 
let's uh, you you mentioned both mentioned this, but let's z- z- zero in on the pro-Trump MAGA election denier candidates, mostly defeated across the country. Um, let's listen to the Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer. He spoke on the chamber floor yesterday. Um, uh, he commented uh, on the results of the midterm elections and the Republican candidates' embrace of what he called MAGA e- extremism. After the failures, Republican failures, in elections in 2018 and 2020 and now in 2022, I hope the message is sinking in. If Republicans continue to embrace MAGA radicalism, they're going to keep losing. Okay, uh, Sarah, um, for those who had sort of worry about the health of our democracy at the top of their their list. Um, is this a sigh of relief? Uh, does that mean uh, we're done with this problem? It's uh, reached its zenith or um, just a, <laughs> a temporary pause, perhaps? What, what should we think here? Well, I think we always have to remain vigilant in protecting democracy um, because the threats aren't just going to go away. Uh, so, I mean, I give... President Biden credit for, you know, one of the big pushes that he had out on the the last couple of weeks before the election was was really emphasizing these threats to democracy. And so I think that that helped in some of these races. If you look at the 94 election deniers who are running for statewide offices that oversee elections over only 14 of them won, nine of those were reelected incumbents. So essentially only five new people that that are, you know, uh, don't recognize the outcome of the 2020 election were were won their races. And those were all in states where Trump had won the, the vote by more, you know, with a margin of at least two to one. And so none of those happened in battleground states. So like in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Georgia, these kind of places, um, the, the election deniers who were running for, uh, you know, various offices uh, related to election oversight uh, were losing. And so I think um, that, that gives us more confidence, I think, in, in how the, the 2024 election will be carried out. Mm-hmm. D- Dennis, a similar relief from you? Uh, I think there's still a lot of these folks out there. And uh, that's uncomfortable. <clears throat> uh, so it's not as though all the, I mean, as, as Sarah properly says, quite a few of these deniers were, were defeated, but there was a significant number um, who did succeed in gaining office. And I think just uh, the, the way our political system has gone, um, we have these sorts of tensions and antagonisms that keep flaming up. And talk radio, as I've said for ages, talk radio, cable TV, and especially the Internet and social media, they keep inflaming all these divisions and keep cooking up all these incredibly wild claims about people. And you heard some of these even after the election, excuse me, that are still there. So, yeah, I think that uh, we've got to be able to have confidence in our election system. But uh, there's still plenty of people out there who are very suspicious and plenty of political people who are willing to try to exploit that suspicion. Mm -hmm. Back to focusing on Iowa, now that it seems to have turned another corner. How surprising to you, Dennis, you first on this, is it that Iowa, a state that only 10 years ago um, voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, is now solid red. How surprising, and what is driving that in your view? 
Uh, well, I'm not surprised. Uh, yes, Iowa was, uh, I came into Iowa from the East in, in 1985, and Iowa was very much of a purple state at that point. And we had uh, several uh, Democratic representatives like Berkeley Bedell in Northwest Iowa and, and Neil Smith and uh, even a moderate Republican um, uh, in the East. So um, uh, I think that um, we've been trending increasingly red, although President Obama, certainly in the Iowa caucuses and in his elections, did well more or less in Iowa. But at the same time, uh, these so-called pivot counties or Obama-Trump counties, they voted for Obama in 12 and uh, uh, Trump in 2016. I believe Iowa had 31 of these counties, mostly in eastern Iowa, but generally speaking, the more rural counties. So I think what we've had increasingly, there have always been these tensions, but there seems to have been increasingly a, a, a sharp divide between the more urban counties and the more rural and small town counties. And I, I, I suggested to people in 2016 that the Trump victory was the revenge of rural and small town Iowa on urban uh, uh, Iowa, not just Iowa, but America generally on urban America. So you've got a lot of counties where they're really struggling and uh, uh, not just culturally, but I think uh, with regard to economics, um, uh, you know, if you look nationwide of the roughly 500 counties that Biden won compared to about the 2,600 counties that Trump won in, in 2020, um, and the same happened with Clinton and Trump in 2016, the 500 Biden counties accounted for 70% of our gross domestic product. And the 25 or 2,600 counties that Trump won account for only 30% of our gross domestic product. So you have areas of the country, I think, that are struggling. And to a great extent, they tend to think, rightly or wrongly, that the Democrats don't hear them and the urban areas don't hear them. And so they're looking for people who do at least claim to hear them and will try to do something to help them out. Mm -hmm. Sarah, does this point, if you agree with Dennis there, does this point to... Um, the Iowa Democratic Party, the Democratic Party across the country, failing in in these cases uh, to address uh, rural rural woes. Well, I think on this point about the the divide, the blue red divide nationally, it, yeah, you take something like California; it's the fourth. It would be the fourth largest country, fourth or fifth largest country in the world in terms of. GDP, right? So that just gives you a, a idea of the difference in s the scale. And one reason why people in California are upset about how underrepresented they are, right? So if you if you're a person who lives in rural Iowa, like your representation in the Senate is much stronger, right, than a person who lives in California. So there's California has a lot less overall representation, even though they they make up a huge, huge percentage of our overall economy. Um, but in a place like Iowa, you're certainly seeing this growing division between blue cities and red rural areas. And that's played out, you know, in terms of a lot of different types of policies, like the minimum wage that I mentioned before, where counties like Johnson County wanted to increase minimum wage, but, but the GOP-led legislature did not want us to do that. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, how do you, how does, how do the Democrats message to this to this rural uh, base. Well, I think obviously issues related to immigration are important uh, things that you're going to have to focus on and, and be articulating clear policies on that. 
I think the Democrats need to do a better job of touting, you know, the ways in which things like the Inflation Reduction Act will benefit people in Iowa um, and maybe also emphasize where our governor, for example, is turning back some of the funds that have been given to the state. So there, there's funding on the table that could be benefiting people in, in rural and urban Iowa, but those those funds are not necessarily being spent. So I think uh, maybe more emphasis on where the current leadership is not fulfilling the promises that could be made and also doing a better job hitting on issues like uh, crime and immigration and some of the cultural issues uh, that Dennis mentioned. Mm-hmm. In the couple minutes we have before we take a break, uh, Dennis, comment on the upcoming lame duck session, of course, the, with the GOP looking to control the U.S. House next year, the next two months will be what is called a lame duck session. Um, what do you see happening there? Um, I was reading that uh, recently lame duck sessions uh, can actually be very productive. Are you seeing that as well? Well, you know, so much of our politics has become a situation of one party trying just to make sure that the other party doesn't get anything done. Uh, so, so much of our politics has become obstructionist in nature that um, I don't have huge hopes there for anything to get done on behalf of uh, dealing with our various problems and such. I think that uh, certainly the Democrats, uh, their special committee dealing with uh, uh, January 6th, since they know the Republicans will abolish that committee when they take control on January 3rd, they're going to try to wrap things up and do as much as they can, knowing they've got a, a serious clock ticking uh, for that. Uh, Democrats, although even Biden said they did, he didn't think that uh, they have the votes to codify Roe v. Wade and their various constitutional issues in regard with that. Um, there may be some other issues about same-sex marriage that Democrats might want to talk about with some Republican support. Um, uh, but again, I think that uh, um, other than this January 6th committee, I guess my expectation would be that the 117th Congress would end more with a whimper than a bang. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, Dennis, on the January 6th committee, uh, do you think, uh, how will they finish up? They'll be dissolved. I think what they want to do is get a report out. Uh, basically, I mean, they've, they've talked to tons of witnesses and uh, have lots of testimony, and they're going to just try to write a, a report supposedly focusing on what President Trump did or didn't do. Uh, but that's all I've been able to find out at this point. Okay, Dennis Goldford is with us of Drake University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. Just a few minutes, we'll return after a break to talk about next year's likely divided Congress. The Republicans uh, likely to secure a slim majority in the House. The Democrats hold on to at least a 50-50 split. We'll ask uh, Dennis and Sarah what this may mean for the new Congress next year. A return to gridlock, brinkmanship, or or something else. We'll find out what they think. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This Politics Day, we're spending it with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Dennis Goldford of Drake University, our two political scientists, picking over the, yes, very many developments since Election Day uh, approximately one week ago. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 In just a few minutes, we'll talk, of course, about... Uh, uh, former President Trump's uh, aspirations for 2024, his announcement last night. Uh, we want to talk about a divided Congress, but let's go to our phones first. Uh, James is with us from Cedar Falls. Hi, James. Uh, what's on your mind uh, nearly about a, about a week uh, after this election? Well, the idea that urban areas tend to be blue and rural areas tend to be red, it seems like in Iowa, cities like Davenport and Dubuque actually seem to go more towards the Republican side. And it's some comments on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I thought the first district was supposed to be, was laid out such that the Democrats might actually stand a better chance. Yeah. But they didn't okay. seem to this time. And those are my questions. Mm-hmm. James, thank you very much. Yeah, comment on that. Um, uh, Dennis, perhaps you can you can tackle this. I, I remember looking at like Lynn County, Scott County, um, uh, and Tom, of course, in the new second district up there in the Waterloo, Cedar Falls area. But uh, is it so neat and clear that the urban urban areas went red and the uh, urban areas went bl- uh, blue and the rural areas went red? Well, it depends upon which race you're talking about. And uh, uh, certainly in the governor's race, for example, there are relatively few, uh, few blue counties, for example. That's what I tend to look at. But to give you two quick examples, I mean, number one, we know both from the old third district <clears throat> for Cindy Axney, which was Polk County, then southwest of there. And then the brand new third district, which she lost, which is Polk County, more or less the apex of a triangle, sort of evenly south of here, that... Um, in the old third with 16 counties in both 2018 and 2020, Representative Axney lost 15 of those 16 counties, and they were the more rural and small-town counties. She won because she had enough of a margin in Polk County to overcome the deficit in the other 15. In the election she just lost, again, she won Polk County, but there are now 21 counties in the 3rd District, but she lost the other 20 counties, and she didn't have enough of a margin in Polk County. So that's an example of that. And again, we can go way back. And I know it's not that everybody in a so-called blue county votes blue or anybody in a red county votes red. But um, uh, I know if you recall, and this is sort of ancient history, but in the 90s when uh, Jim Ross Lightfoot, representative in Congress, Republican, ran against uh, Tom Harkin in 96 and uh, lost for Senate and ran against State Senator Vilsack in 98 for governor, um, Lightfoot won 93 of the 99 counties in the state. The counties he didn't win were Polk, uh, Lynn, Blackhawk, Scott, Dubuque, and Johnson. And they're the more urban counties. All the Republicans always, at least when I first came to Iowa, referred to uh, Johnson County as the People's Republic of Johnson County because they thought it was so liberal because of the University of Iowa. But it was clear that... Um, 
to the extent that Democrats were, compa- uh, were, were competitive on a congressional district or certainly a statewide level, it depended upon big turnout in these more urban counties, not, not that they won every single vote, to overcome the deficit in the more rural counties. Those turnouts may not be there as much now, or there just may simply be more Republican strength across the board that Democrats are having to cope with. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Des Moines. David is listening in Des Moines and called in. Welcome to the program, David. Hello. Um, and I, I think the, Iowa did the right thing by not electing any Democrats. And you guys pointed it out there. It's a urban, rural-urban divide. And you can look around at any major city in the United States and see that Democrats are just clearly incompetent and in dropping the ball. With the uh, cash bail uh, situation, that's not going to be good in Chicago come turn of the year. David, do you have a question? No, I got something to say, though. So, I mean, well, I, I got a question. Do you think you guys are carrying water for the Democrats, or do you think you're an honest arbiter of the facts? All right. David in, in Des Moines, thank you very much. Uh, Sarah, can we toss, toss you that one? <laughs> we, we, sure uh, hope, uh, we sure hope the latter, um, but, but Sarah, comment, please. Uh, well, I mean, generally, there's a lot of evidence showing that uh, professors um, do a really good job on, on college campuses being, you know, uh, hearing multiple positions on, on issues and creating discussion across uh, different ideologies and parties. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to send that person <laughs> said evidence. <laughs> okay, Let, let's talk about the divided Congress. Time is slipping away from us. Um, uh, Dennis, what, what, is it, what does all this mean for the new Congress less, next year? Gridlock, compromise, uh, are you seeing the same thing there as, um, you, know, you know, predictions for the lame duck? That, uh, or, or can we know at this point without the, the leadership uh, there elected yet? I, I think it's hard to know at this point. My expectation would be more in the way of gridlock, and so the surprise would be more if they got something done. But our politics has become, as I said earlier, increasingly contentious. contentious. And what's important is depriving the other side of a victory as opposed to finding a compromise that might serve the American people broadly in some positive way. Now, um, particularly with the presidential election coming up, um, you know, certainly Republicans want to use leverage by controlling the House to make sure Democrats don't get any particular accomplishments they can brag about in a presidential year. And Democrats, of course, because they have the presidency, they have veto power over anything that comes from Congress. So and then the Democrats have the Senate. So they'd be able to block things that might come from a Republican House. So both sides, unfortunately, I think, probably have it in their self-interest to try to obstruct the other side more than try to find some sort of compromise. And compromise has become a dirty word in American politics, which I think is the more fundamental problem. Um, the parties would rather stand their ground and, and fight for their particular people rather than saying, okay, let's see how we can split the difference. Sarah, do you see the, uh, the new Congress um, yet still being formed in the same light? Yeah, I mean, one thing uh, Dennis didn't mention on the lame duck Congress is whether the debt debt ceiling limit will be addressed or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a couple of options there, right? Uh, It 
it could be possible that uh, like they could use an omnibus spending bill approach um, to address that uh, before that would end in, in mid-December. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had sort of made a plea to Democrats to consider doing that. I, I don't know that that's going to happen, but I think that will be something to watch. Um, and I also think, uh, yeah, the, the Democrats have signaled that they're going to try to push through some kind of bill to protect dreamers related to the DACA program. So th there was a House bill that was passed in March 2021 that would grant citizen citizenships to farm workers, but they're seeking to extend that. I just, in fact, saw a tweet by um, President Obama related to the, the dreamers act and so so that's another thing i would at least uh see as a possible possible vote in addition to the the same sex, sex marriage uh federal recognition that they're trying to get a vote on in the senate this week political scientists sarah mitchell and dennis goldford joining us this hour on politics day we have just over 10 minutes left let's uh, talk about last night's announcement by former president trump uh, that he's running again in in 2024, the twice impeached former president, uh, who inspired a failed attempt to overturn the 2020 election, kicked off his candidacy last night at his Florida club, Mar-a-Lago. Let's hear one of the comments. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people. This is a movement. This is not for any one individual. Okay, Dennis, we knew this was coming. Uh, what does it mean now that, now that it's here that he's throwing the hat, his hat into the ring again? Dennis Goldford, are you still there? Um, sorry, sorry about that. It did not meet with uh, unanimous support. Uh, and 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 uh, agreement from conservative media. The Wall Street Journal uh, suggested that uh, uh, this was not something that uh, they preferred seeing former President Trump doing. Um, National Review, longtime conservative journal, had on one of its web pages just a big with this picture and superimposed over it the word "no." Uh, so again, this did not raise. Uh, uh, hopes and dreams all across the board among more conservative and Republican constituencies in the country. Uh, the president sounded very low-key. His staffers probably wanted to keep him that way last night, but evidently people there uh, witnessing it talked among themselves while he was talking, and uh, some have, by some reports some wanted to leave, but they weren't allowed to do that because of security and so forth. So it was not the kind of overwhelming rally that we used to see he would have on the stump in both 2016 and, and 2020. But nonetheless, he wants to do this. Uh, he still has a, a base of support. The best thing in his favor is the extent to which any kind of Republican opposition might be a divided opposition. That's how he got the nomination in 2016. So if he can divide and conquer because he's got that rock-solid element of maybe uh, – you know, 35% or so of Republicans who are perhaps Trumpers before they're Republicans, uh, if the opposition to him remains divided, that allows him to, to, to ease through again. That's what we have yet to see. 
Mm-hmm. Sarah, we have a number of callers we'd like to get on, but to talk about this and, and the, the potential rival being put there, Ron DeSantis uh, crushed his opponent in Florida in that uh, gubernatorial race. Um, what do you see shaping up here in the Republican column for 2024? We're ways, way away from yeah, it, but yeah. I definitely, well, you also have Mike Pence potentially stepping yep. in the, to that race as well um, and separating himself from Trump. Uh, you know, you've got some of the big GOP donors like Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone and Kenneth Griffin of Citadel uh, pulling back money. Though they, they were both longtime Trump supporters. Um, you Some of the polls that have come out, so the conservative group Club for Growth put out a poll showing DeSantis leading in Iowa by 11 points and in New Hampshire by 15 points. And then uh, YouGov uh, also did a recent survey and found DeSantis leading 41% to 39% for Trump. So mm. I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, it, if DeSantis runs, uh, how well he competes against Trump. And then if he were to get the nomination, I think the next question we have to ask is whether Trump will run as an independent candidate, which would definitely mm. uh, <laughs> change the dynamics of the next election. Yeah. Tom is with us from Winterset. He has a question um, on our uh, current topic of uh, Trump uh, announcing his intentions for 2024. Hi, Tom. How you doing? Pretty well. What's on your mind here? Well, my question is sort of, and this could be applied by the Republicans or or the Democrats. Isn't President Trump barred by the 14th Amendment? As a for a con, someone who took a constitutional oath and then was in insurrection against the government, the Civil War amendments are not specific to the Civil War. They don't say the the late the Civil War. It says insurrection against the United States and those who helped our enemies. One could argue that all the Republican leadership is not can't shouldn't be allowed into Congress because they were involved in the insurrection. But at the very least, President Trump. What do you think of that? Mm. Tom, okay, let's toss that one to Dennis. What do you think, Dennis? Sure, I've seen this talked about uh, in in some quarters. My immediate response, and I'm not an expert here, would be that uh, former President Trump and the various other Republicans the caller refers to have not been tried and convicted of anything at this point. If they were tried and convicted of sedition or or, or, or something like that, then that might well kick in. But uh, they've, they've, there's been no trial, let alone conviction at this point. So I'm not sure that applies. Mm-hmm. Also, Let's the, dig- the classified yes, docu- sorry, the classified documents uh, issue at Mar-a-Lago could also be disqualifying if he were again tried and convicted. So, so that's another ongoing DOJ case that that could have an impact in that direction. The former president not convicted of any crimes yet. It is unclear if the U.S. Justice Department will ever bring charges against him in these inquiries. You mentioned one there, Sarah, uh, the documents at Mar-a-Lago, but also his actions uh, before the January 6th attack on on the Capitol. Uh, While we're on this question, should, Sarah, should the Attorney General Merrick Garland perhaps name a special counsel to take over the various federal criminal investigations of of Trump's conduct? Um, Well, I I do think, I I have heard this argument, right, that that 
one of the reasons he's running is to provide some cover to these investigations. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see um, how that's going to be handled by Department of Justice. Um, I, I don't really know. I mean, I suspect they'll continue with the since they've already initiated the cases, they'll continue forward with them. But mm-hmm. but you've also got the, uh, you know, the Georgia uh his attempts to change the, the 2020 Georgia election results, that's also still ongoing, right? Um, yeah. and, and beyond, and the, ta- the tax fraud issue uh, is, is not related to, to his ability to run, but, but also another important case, I guess, to be watching. Dennis, do we know how this may affect holding those responsible for January 6th accountable? Well, there are various individuals, I guess. There have been some people who have been tried and convicted, resentences, uh, people who are actually there manning the barricades those days. So the, the, the criminal justice system deals with some cases like that, but in other cases, it's the political system that deals with these matters. Um, the U.S. certainly doesn't want to be a country in which losing an election becomes, as it were, a criminal offense. I mean, if that's the case, then somebody's going to make sure by means fair or foul that he doesn't lose an election. And that gets us to a whole big uh, dangerous ball of wax. So I think there's, a, there's, a, there's not a law, but I think there's just sort of rule of thumb that you don't institute criminal proceedings against someone running for office, what, Sarah, is it something like within a month or so or a, a certain period of time before that election? Um, it's just we've never faced circumstances like this before where criminal issues aside that you've had people violate the norms of ordinary political behavior and expectations so significantly and so often. So we're in new uncharted territory here. And I think the people like Merrick Garland and those around him are trying to game this out as well as the prosecutors in in Georgia and other places. Let's finish up this hour going abroad. On Monday of this week, uh, President Biden met the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Uh, they held their first in-person talks since uh, uh, on the sidelines of the 20, G20 summit. This was in Bali, Indonesia, the first time they've met at, while Biden has been president. Uh, Sarah, what are your takeaways from this supposed three-and-a-half-hour meeting? I think it was... Uh... This is their first face-to-face meeting. Uh, they knew each other when they were both vice presidents, so they have a historical relationship to build on. I thought it was positive in terms of, um, you know, both sides being very frank and open with each other, but also um, clarifying some things that have been, you know, uh, thorny issues recently. So if you remember in September, Biden said the U.S. would defend Taiwan if China invaded. And some people at the time were questioning whether that was sort of a change in the the U.S. one China policy. And so uh, during these discussions, uh, Biden reaffirmed that the U.S. was committed to uh, the one China policy, but also called out China's, you know, what he called coercive and increasingly aggressive actions towards Taiwan. Um, And then China, in response, blamed tensions uh, on the Taiwan issue in terms of the, you know, Taiwan seeking U.S. support for their independence and, and things like Pelosi's visit. And so uh, so I think both sides were, were very honest with each other about the Taiwan issue. The Ukraine war, of course, uh, was front and center. So they, they both affirmed that nuclear weapons should never be used. Nuclear war should never be fought and that 
they are both opposed to the threat or use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. I think that that's an important joint statement towards Russia. Um, and then they also agreed to resume climate talks um, over, uh, which had been frozen after Pelosi's visit. So, so again, I think that, uh, you know, other issues like the semiconductor technology ban, um, export ban, you know, those are other things they discuss. But, but in general, I, I think it was a, a pretty positive first step. And uh, Anthony Blinken will be following that up in early in the year with a visit to China. Dennis, if I may, the final minute here to ask you for your thoughts on Twitter. I don't think you you tweet. You don't have a Twitter account that I know of. But under Elon Musk, uh, uh, it's been Twitter, of course, so central to our politics in recent years uh, and so vital, especially for one very well-known candidate that, who became president. Uh, what do you think of the, the chaos surrounding Twitter right now as it is wrapped up in our politics? Well, you're correct. I don't tweet. I don't Twitter. I don't do social media, things like that. Uh, to me, it lends itself too much to demagoguery and to half-truths or complete falsehoods and things like that uh, when extended to, to matters political and such. But I think that uh, there will always be a way for political people to communicate with their actual and potential constituents. And uh, uh, if it's not social media, they'll find some other particular way. But as I said earlier, I think what it does is exacerbate our differences and our tensions. And at least from my perspective, uh, it could be wrong, but at least from my perspective, it seems like so far it's been a net negative rather than net positive, at least as regards politics. Sarah, in contrast to Dennis, you are on Twitter, as am I. Um, yes. <laughs> quickly, in 30 seconds, your thoughts. <laughs> well, the political science studies I've shown on this issue show that Facebook has been much more polarizing than Twitter. Um, so I think if you're concerned about a platform, you're maybe worried about the wrong one there. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think, well, who knows what's going to happen with Twitter. I just archive my tweets so in case it goes down i have a record of everything <laughs> there you go sarah mitchell of the university of iowa the f wendell miller professor of political science dennis goldford professor of political science at drake university in des moines dennis and sarah thank you so much for your analysis and the input from our uh, listeners today thank you so much thank you you bet we hope you'll tune in again tomorrow i'm ben Kiefer. it's river to river from ipr news Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.